Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing today? Good, Bruce. I've been limping around since Sunday night. I I uh, hurt my knee in a shinny game by colliding with my wife, oh, who was on my team. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we were both going for the puck. And I smashed into her. Fortunately, she wasn't hurt. That was um, my first question. Yeah, she was okay. Second one is, how are you doing with your knee? Uh, I was limping around pretty good, but my knee's getting better. So that's a huge relief. I mean, any like we played non-contact hockey, but any hockey, In theory. You, get, you always get banged up. You always get hurt, especially as you get a little older. It's just mm-hmm. nonstop. But it's fun. So it's highly addictive. Um, how are things with you? Oh, pretty good, all things considered. Things considered, it's, uh, you know, Stanley Cup Finals time. It's my 59th straight Stanley Cup Finals. Would be 60 if the league hadn't cancelled an entire season on me along the way there. But uh, it's uh, it's always an interesting time of year. And it's, uh, you know, we've still got sort of the, the lingering after tingle of the Oilers having gone as deep into proceedings as they did. And now we got... Uh, I think very good news on the coaching front. So I'm kind of, i kind of in an upbeat position yeah. as of this moment about, yeah. uh, about my orders. So Bruce, <laughs> I'm sure the, your first Stanley Cup wasn't on the wasn't Foster Hewitt on the radio, right? It was televised, was it not? Or it was televised. It was 1963, and at that time they used to join the games in progress. But in the Stanley Cup Finals, they gave Canadians the special privilege of watching the entire game from start to finish. And in Game One of the '63 Stanley Cup Finals, uh, uh, Dick Duff of Toronto set an all-time Stanley Cup record by scoring two goals in the first one minute and eight seconds of the series. So, and that was a record for one team. I believe it was still the standing record for fastest two goals in a playoff game by the same team until Calgary. Until Calgary. There you go. Did it to the Oilers in game one. Remember it was 2 nothing before they even got to the one-minute mark? And that, I think that was the one that broke... Dick Duff's record after all these years. So, yeah, that was a disor- disorienting game. That first game against the Flames, just like the first game against the Avs, was really no. disorienting. No. Uh, never got, didn't get much better after that either with the Avs. Uh, yeah. So Jay Woodcroft, Bruce, you did mm-hmm. a post on him. Yes. Um, what would you say are the, you know, the two or three or four things that Jay Woodcroft uh, brought to the team that were lacking? in the team? What what changes did he make that you really liked? Oh, boy. Uh, uh, breath of fresh air, uh, and at the same time, a breath of familiar air uh, to the many players in that room who were familiar with Jay Woodcroft, uh, either uh, during his time as assistant coach, uh, which was early in the careers of uh, Connor McDavid, Darnell Nurse, their rookie season was... Uh, Woodcroft's first season as uh, as Todd McClellan's assistant, Drysaddle that was his first full season. Uh, even Nuge was a you know a young developing player on that team, and so he has a little a uh, uh, little bit of relationship with those guys uh, from before, 
Uh, and then, of course, uh, three and a half years down in Bakersfield, where he developed uh, not only a relationship, but, uh, uh, you know, a good understanding of the players that are now up and coming support players on the Oilers. So uh, I, I think, you know, his background, like, I think it's unique. I can't find another coach who uh, uh, who coached in the big league team and the, and the farm team and then came back to... Uh, uh, the yeah. big league club. I mean, guys like John Cooper, you know, I mean, he has some of the Woodcroft resume in that he got called up uh, during the uh, was during the lockout season 2013, and uh, um, some of the Tampa guys. I think it was Andre Palat that got called up at the exact same time, and two or three guys that were you know on the farm team with him that year, and then were regulars on the Bolts with him after Tyler Johnson was another. And, you know, he had that advantage, but he didn't have the background of having already worked with, you know, for example, uh, Steven Stamkos and Victor Hedman would have been the equivalents uh, of had he been in that situation in Tampa. But so Woodcroft, like he's got, he really does have sort of two strong footprints within the organization uh, that uh, he's now standing on both feet as the head coach of the whole shebang and he's got developed strong relationships and understanding with all of all of his uh, you know all of his main players let's put it that way and uh he uh so but also he brings a 21st century coaching perspective uh or at least a 20 2020s coaching perspective whereas the previous coaches the oilers had were uh, in my view, their best years were behind them when uh, when they took the bench here. Uh, and I just like his like he's a strong communicator and he's you know he's good in a public forum and I, I'm very confident he's equally good in a one-on-one -on -one setting or in the dressing room or, or what have you. like that's a real strength of his and uh, He's up on hockey theory. He's got the video coaching background. There's just a whole lot of sort of things in his resume coming up. Uh, you know, I mean, he's 45 years old and he's uh, uh, he has uh, 13 years of coaching experience in the NHL, well, 13 and a half now. And he's now four years of being a, a, his own boss as a head coach. And, you know, the, the future is bright. He um, he he is very positive with the players. He never, so far, at least he hasn't thrown them under the bus in any way. He builds them up. And um, I think that's fairly effective with most human beings um, to be in a positive environment like that. Um, <laughs> I liked, um, for whatever reason, and I don't know why, the team had fallen apart defensively under Tippett in the last few games. And um, they were just giving up grade A shots and five alarm shots galore, all kinds of two-on-ones, three-on-two breaks. And, you know, we hear about the, the coach losing the team. It looked like that had happened uh, with the Edmonton Oilers. This team was just, whatever he was teaching them, they were not listening to. They weren't doing it. They weren't executing and it was alarming. It was alarming enough that in the end, it, although Tippett had done well with the Oilers in his in his tenure, I, I thought it was a good move to make the change. And I had been resistant to that um, more than most uh, Oilers fans right to the end. I hadn't seen the need for it, but um, I do think it was the right decision. Tippett 
I mean, Woodcroft, the thing about his tactical decisions, they all, almost all of them worked out. I mean, when he went, he would, he would shift between going with 12 forwards and 11 forwards mm-hmm. in games and six and seven defensemen. And, and usually that worked out well. I mean, I was skeptical of 11 and seven. Really worked with the orders, you know, in, in large part because McDavid and Drysaddle then could get some extra ice time. And it also upset the flow of the other team's lines. Um, and th- <laughs> threw off that. You just never know who the Oilers are going to put on the ice. Yeah. And I think that helped the Oilers and upset the opposition. He split up um, McDavid and Dreisaitl and put Nugent Hopkins at center. And again, I had, had not been a fan of Ryan Nugent Hopkins at center for some time. But I thought Nugent played his best hockey of his NHL career at center as a two-way player. He's older now. Um, and um, Dreisaitl and McDavid were, were, you know, I've always liked them split up. And always had favored that, and they played well. And and then he went back to McDavid and Drysaddle at the right moment, you know, yes. in part due to injury, and that also yes. worked. His pairings, mm-hmm. his defense pairings, he put CC and Nurse together, which I had wanted to see, and he he went with that pairing and stuck with it, and gave them the hardest uh, competi- quality competition. That worked out, I think. It certainly worked out, I think, especially for the other pairings. Yes. Uh, in terms of Bouchard and Keith. And eventually Kulak and Barry, both mm-hmm. those pairings excelled, uh, and or at least did a lot better. Kulak and Barry excelled, and Bouchard and Keith did a lot better when Cece and, and Nurse started to take on all of the heavy lifting. I think it took a toll on Darnell Nurse's game. Cody Cece rose to the occasion and uh, generally got it done like he he did all year. Um, you know, he benefited, Woodcroft did from a few things. Kane uh, was already with the team in Tippett's last game, last uh, games, but he really became a huge part of the team and got going in a big way, um, which was going to happen, whoever was the coach, I think. Uh, but Woodcroft benefited from that. And then the health of the goalies. Yes. Um, he benefited hugely from Mike Smith mm-hmm. getting healthy and getting on a hot streak. So, so there was some good luck there, but there is with, you know, there is an all success, an right. element of good luck. And, uh, but there's also skill good coaching good moves and woodcroft did all of those things the team um in the playoffs bruce we're we're the the only thing that i that i really regret in this year's playoffs is that they didn't weren't able to find that that their top defensive game against the la kings earlier if they had dispatched the la kings in four or five games in a, in a four or five game series, which they should have, they were they were much better than the LA Kings, I think, in that series. I don't think it was that close, but the Oilers' uh, defensive hockey was not strong enough in some of those games, especially I think games um, three and four or four and five, four, four and five, four and five. They just they didn't they bought their C game on defense, not their A game, and they paid a price. And the price, the price you pay is you get beat up more. Um, if you have to play more playoff games, even mm-hmm. if you're better than the other team. And it, and it was a heavy, heavy, heavy price because uh, that's when Leon Dreisaitl got hurt um, yeah. as as the series went along. I think it was a game six or was it game, game six? Five? Game six. So if, if they had yeah. beaten out the Kings in game five, that play doesn't happen. And maybe there's a different story um, when you eventually have to play Colorado. Maybe you could split up McDavid and Dreisaitl. Um, maybe they, they find a way with Dreisaitl healthy to to beat Colorado. I, I think it, it, it was going to be a real challenge in any case. So so I don't think actually that is on, part of defensive play is on the coach. Like he's telling the players what they have to do. 
the players themselves have got to realize it. They have to feel it in their heart and their bones and um, every part of their being, they've got to commit to defensive hockey. That didn't happen until they were on the ropes against LA. And maybe they, the Oilers needed that moment to fully understand how important fundamental defensive play was and that kind of defensive intensity was. So I'm not sure that's necessarily Woodcroft's fault. That's kind of a, a team learning moment. And I and I I don't think they forgot that lesson throughout the playoffs, even though the Avs dominated them. I don't think it was because the Oilers didn't have defensive intensity. I think by then it was because the Oilers were were beat up and facing a different beast than they had faced in Calgary or LA. Just you know, the puck moving of the Avs is yeah. out of this world good, and mm-hmm. it's going to be a challenge for the Oilers to figure out mm-hmm. how to beat that that that's talent that the Avs present, especially on their blue line. And it might be Bruce playing pretty negative hockey against them in the future, like really clogging up the neutral zone. Like it might not be something that that we're going to like necessarily mm-hmm. as fans, but it's going to be a defensive system and a defensive technique which will throttle the, those players eventually. And the orders are going to have to, that's Jay Woodcroft's next goal, um, is to figure out that what players he needs what what and what he needs from the players he has in order to play the defensive hockey that it's going to take to beat the Colorado Avalanche. I think he's up to it. I think he's going to do that. And it might take a year or two, but I think he's going to do that. Yeah, well, he, I mean, it's a tall order. Now, Colorado themselves, they got, uh, we're looking at the, uh, the pinnacle of that team, I think, right now in the sense that they have a whole lot of contracts that are coming up this summer and they're not going to be able to keep all these guys. You know, they have as uh, unrestricted free agents, uh, Andre Burakovsky, uh, Nazem Kadri, Valerie Nichushkin, uh, and uh, on the back end, Josh Manson and Darcy Kemper in goal. That's five pretty important players for them. And, you know, not even necessarily first-line guys, but a lot of second-line and high-end second-line players in that uh, in that list, and they're not going to be able to keep them all. You know, I mean, if they try and keep, say, Nichushkin, which there's talk of him being made now a priority on the fact that he's been playing fantastic, uh, but they're not going to keep him at two and a half million that he's got now. They're going to be keeping him at five or six million, and that's going to mean that they're not going to have a lot left to sign some of these other guys. So they're uh, and then they got, I think, one more year of Nathan McKinnon at 6.3. And then he's going to get a huge raise from that. Yeah. And they're going to have to pay for that somehow. So they've got uh, they've got headaches. And, uh, I mean, Joe Sackick has uh, done an impressive job as GM. There's no two ways about it. Um, but he's got his work cut out for him. Yeah, the heart of their team, though, like those defensemen and McKinnon are back. And and they're Ranton and Landeskog. So the heart of their team is back, and they will miss Kadri. Um, what we can hope is, like, we're all hoping that Yesen Puliyarvi becomes Edmonton's Valerie Nakushkin. Well, we can hope that Valerie Nakushkin becomes Colorado's Brian Bickle. It's not that guy's <laughs> name. Not a great big forward on the yeah. Hawks who signed a big deal and then wasn't any good after that. So um, anyway, uh, I, I'm not actually hoping that for that guy to fail like that just a little bit um they're, they're they still have though mccarr and um they they've right. got uh taves and they've got um bowen byram right to me and mckinnon yep. this is the heart of their team 
Unreal. Like those, and they got Gerard and Ranton, and they got Gerard coming back. They could trade Gerard. Like he's got a pretty big I think contract. They will. Five million dollars a year. I think they're going to find a taker for that contract because yeah. there's lots of teams that need. Uh, is he right shot too? Um, he's a he's a lefty. Lefty that plays and, right. And he yeah, and he's a little guy that uh, uh, when he got when he got hurt, and uh, I mean once I knew that the Oilers would be playing them, and I was looking at and saying, well they're short a couple guys, and in Gerard's case, I think well they're going to miss him, but at the same time, I thought he was one guy in their defense that might be vulnerable. Uh, that he's not that strong defensively and have very happy memories of Leon absolutely manhandling the guy in overtime uh, on on a shift in overtime that quickly ended the game in Edmonton's favor because because uh, uh, Drysaddle so overpowered Gerard in the high in the zone and then again in the low slot. I was attended that game in person. It was right in front of me. And I went, oh, wow, Sam Gerard, you've got your hands full with big forwards in this league. And that was three, four years ago, and uh, no doubt he's got better, Gerard. Um, but uh, I see him as a trade chip for Colorado to for yeah. cap space first and foremost. And I mean, when they 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 got him making five million, well now they got Bowen Byram. You know, when he got hurt, Gerard got hurt. Byram basically got promoted and got more ice time, and he's answered that bell. And so they may be looking at at Byram as being sort of their number three guy going forward and he's still on his ELC he's got a year to run so they're sitting pretty in that one as well yeah so with Gerard I think they're there I think he's got a, like I don't know five years left at five million so he's not cheap he's not yeah. a cheap uh player to yes. get but um let me just see here yeah his points per game was pretty good He's right in the. He's right around where Tyson Berry was in terms of even strength points per game this doesn't year. Doesn't play power play. Yeah, and he doesn't so. play power play. So there's you could see a team thinking, okay, there's lots of teams that would be improved by having Samuel Gerard and have the cap space, you know, right. like Ottawa or there's all these teams that could just take take him and and be a better team. So, you know, maybe even Dallas, right? If they lose uh, Kling Klingberry, right? John Klingberg. Uh, to free agency you could see them making a move for him so yeah Colorado's gonna I think they're gonna figure it out I don't think I'm hoping they can't keep Kadri and um they'll they'll lose him because he's a he's a pretty good hockey player to say the least yeah um okay so any final any other thoughts on Woodcroft or should we move on to the next topic Oh, just uh, I liked his avail again today and just his you know his thoughts about moving forward terms of using the summer to first of all reflect and go through his detailed game notes that he takes and you know just sort of going going back starting <laughs> with going back and reviewing what worked and what didn't work and I suppose a lot of coaches probably have a have a similar mindset but uh, he, mm. he he does seem ultra organized and the idea that he's going to be involved in the in the process right from you know the summer pro scouting meetings right through, you know, preparing for your training camp and maybe even having some input on his players, you know, what they're doing in the off season. And, you know, he'll come into camp with the job, with the job security and, and you know, with the, some new pieces that he's going to have to uh, mix in. But uh, I think just the fact that he's going to be here all year and uh, and preparing for that grind is a, is a real positive after uh, you know having to sort of jump on the moving bus in uh, the season just passed. 
<sighs> We're moving on to our next subject then, Bruce. Sure. Yeah. Which is the MVP vote oh. of mm. the NHL. Both the players and the media voted on um, uh, who was the most valuable player. And they both selected Austin Matthews. So, Bruce, I was ready to get... I, I actually thought that McDavid... I think there was a uh, a survey. They recently did a survey, the uh, the players, about, you know, who the best player is. And, you know, McDavid handily won this. Like, who'd you like mm-hmm. to most be on the ice with? Yeah. It was McDavid. It, was, it, it wasn't close. Yeah. So I was thinking that the players actually might pick Connor McDavid as, as the MVP this year, as the best player this year, I should say. And they didn't. They picked Austin Matthews. Now, we don't know how close the players' vote was. We do know how close the, the to their credit, the writers and broadcasters um, released the full results of who voted for what. And uh, fantastic. Good for them. They, 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 uh, they've started doing that a few years ago, and it's a very good idea. Matthews, I think, got about uh, two, three votes for every, or three voting points for every two voting points that McDavid got. So um, it was it was close, but there was a number of writers who did not have and broadcasters who did not have Connor McDavid in their top five, which is freaking five, five voters didn't have him in the preposterous, top five. Preposterous, right? That's yeah. just ridiculous. That's that's asinine. You know, so I was ready to blow my stack until I saw the players vote, Bruce, and and I note that I think in the year that uh, Taylor Hall, uh, that you know, the narrative of Taylor Hall won. The uh, Hart Trophy, rather, yep. you know, you know this high idea that idiot Edmonton management made a mistake and traded their great player to um, New Jersey, and he transformed the New Jersey franchise by leading them to one playoff victory. I think that year, they did make the playoffs. Taylor Hall did have a good year, but it, mm-hmm. in no way was he better than Connor McDavid that year. And it was a, you know, the narrative just took over, took off, and Hall won the. Um, the Hart Trophy, uh, but um, he didn't win that year the Ted Lindsay Award for the NHLPA's best player. Connor McDavid won, so I thought justice was done there, and I thought there might be a similar kind of justice this year. There mm-hmm. wasn't. Matthews won, so I, I, I it it really took the wind out of my sails in terms of complaining about this. Um, the players themselves on the ice. Um, you know, w- would they be affected by the huge media market of Toronto and the, the narrative about Matthews? Possibly. I mean, s- stranger things have happened. But no, I, I, I have to accept this result. I didn't, yeah. and I have to say, like, I, I actually can't say who the better player was this year in the regular season, McDavid or Matthews, because we didn't watch. I didn't watch Austin Matthews. Um, but he was on TV in, every night, out, David. Shift in, shift out. Well, I don't watch all the games. I watch the Oilers. I'm very Oilers-centric. Hell, even when I'm watching the Oilers play some other team, I'm really watching the Oilers. I mean, I don't focus that much on the other teams ever, even when I'm watching the, the Oilers games. It seems enough for me to try to figure out what's going on with the Oilers rather than, I mean, to for one person to have an understanding of the NHL, like the work that we put in on the Oilers, it's not possible for one person to do that. Even if you were doing it full-time, which and this is just, you know, part-time for us. And um, so anyway, I can't say... I understand Austin Matthews, Austin Matthews is a pretty good defensive hockey player. And his offensive numbers are, are really, really good. His 60-goal season can't be denied. So I, I just have to congratulate Austin Matthews on a great season and uh, on the two award victories, even though I personally, based on my own 
bias would have voted for Connor McDavid if I had a vote. If I had a vote, I would try to take it more seriously, though, and maybe, you know, watch the other teams a little bit more. Well, he won three trophies in all, of course, because he also won the Rock of Shard for his 60 goals. Now, I find it a little bit peculiar that uh, he, with his 60 goals and 106 points, uh, convincingly won the Hart Trophy. And Leon Dreisaitl, with his 55 goals and 110 points, very similar stats, finished ninth with zero first-place votes uh, for the uh, for the uh, Hart. Uh, but so it is. I mean, uh, let's put it this way. Austin Matthews is the first Toronto Maple Leaf in my lifetime to win the Hart Trophy. Uh, last Leaf who did so was... Uh, Ted Kennedy, Teeter Kennedy, in 1955, he won the Hart Trophy, and I was in the womb, so I guess some people might say that was in my lifetime, but I certainly don't remember it, other than I've read about the legendary Ted Kennedy, and Toronto, in all the years I've been tracking hockey till now, and you know, 66 years since, won zero Hart Trophies, and my team, the Edmonton Oilers, didn't get in the NHL for 24 years. Their, their first home game in the NHL was my 24th birthday. Before I turned 25, they already had a Hart Trophy winner. And now they have 12 different Hart Trophy seasons from four different players. And Toronto finally got one. So I'm not going to begrudge uh, Leaf fans their, their moment of glory that they have the MVP in the league finally. It's been a long wait. And... Uh, you know, 67 years, that's, that's a magic number in Toronto, 67. But uh, anyway, they've, uh, <laughs> they've, uh, they've got uh, Austin Matthews. He's a great player. He had a great year. And uh, move on to the next. I mean, our boys have already won. Uh, Connor's got two hearts and, and three Lindsay awards. Uh, Drysaddle's got one each. And... You know, onwards to bigger or better things. Uh, a few people asked yesterday, would you rather have those two awards on the shelf or would you rather have two playoff series wins? And I know what my answer is with a bullet. So I'm quite sanguine f- about it. Do we know who the five writers are who didn't? Has anyone identified them? Uh, the votes will be made public. It hasn't happened they yet. Are, no, they are. No, they are public. I'm just looking at them right and now. That two, and two left Matthews off their ballot. Like, he didn't get named on all the ballots. Whereas last year, McDavid not only won the MVP, he was unanimous, number one on every ballot. So this year, even the winner didn't get named on all the ballots, let alone be the first name. So it's a little bit more of a, uh, less of a slam dunk. And that, that said, he won by a lot, like 500 points or something. So, you know, he's the clear winner of this year's poll. Indeed, indeed. Oh, well, whatever. Can't win them all. Uh, Bruce, um, you know, and I do think there's a, there's a non, there's a large, there's a good chance. We just all watched the uh, documentary or many of us watched the documentary on Michael Jordan Mm -hmm. and how he would take the smallest slight slight against him and build that up into this Mm -hmm. nuclear power pack generator of motivation Mm -hmm. inside of himself and 
you know, just absolutely be determined to crush um, <laughs> that that player. Like, there's more one and one competition in the NBA, of right. course. They play the whole game. It's a different, somewhat different. You know, obviously, it's a different five on five sport. But um, <clears throat> Jordan would use that as motivation to drive to propel him to new heights. I think Connor McDavid may have this, a similar personality, and uh, this kind of thing may may really fire him up in terms of. Uh, getting him out there and working harder and training harder. I mean, he's obviously, uh, when it comes to motivation, he's in the, you know, the 99.99999 percentile already, but maybe this will add it. Just a little bit more fire to that ambition that he seems to have as a hockey player and a human being. So that's the good news is uh, he, he will not be satisfied, I do not think. Um, Bruce, we're going to move on. Go ahead, sorry. I was going to say, second All-Star team. I mean, that's a big slate. Ooh, Ooh that hurts. You know? Yeah, Only made the Mind second you, team. One year, Phil Esposito won the Hart Trophy, I think, and finished on the second All-Star team, if I'm not mistaken. Wayne Gretzky did that twice. Ooh. You, you know that's, that's not a... They're not liking that at all. <laughs> so... Um, all right. We're going to move on to Yesapuli Arvi. Uh, <laughs> keep... Fold or fold. I'm going to be writing about him. I'm not sure if I'll write about him tonight or uh, later on, but it, up, upcoming. You've already written a kind of a lengthy post um, in recent weeks on on, on Pulleyard. So, uh, but I've yet to weigh in. Keep hold or fold, Bruce, on Yesa Pulleyarvi. Oh, I'm keep Yesa man all the way. I think he's scratching the surface of the player he's going to be. And I think he's already uh, helping the team in, in important ways and ways that are are subtle and not fully credited uh, by some in the hockey community. Uh, but uh, his overall effect on the game is to tilt the ice uh, in the direction that favors the Oilers. Uh, uh, on largely his play, I won't say away from the puck, but I won't say with the puck. I'll say his play around the puck, uh, where he, uh, and uh, not solely, but importantly, in the offensive zone, where he is just so good at, uh, at puck recoveries, at effective forechecks that prevent uh, zone exits for the other team and create 50-50 pucks that either he or teammates will jump on to keep the pressure on. Uh, and we'll find out in our, you know, in our own scoring chance project, we see that there's uh, plenty of goals that he contributes to that he's actually not credited with uh, being part of the scoring play, but it's something that Yessa has done, be it to, to uh, pop the puck free in the first place or to create a, a screen in front of the net or, or traffic that um, uh, helps enable the goal to be scored. And those kind of skills, I don't think they're properly rated in the game, period. Like, he won't get paid for those kind of plays the way he was if he was piling up the goals and points. Uh, but to me, he had a, he had a good season, not a, not a perfect season. Uh, it was compromised by health issues. And uh, I think he actually got less effective in the late going of the season. Uh, but uh, overall, uh, a strong contributor to... Uh, uh, the success of his line, and no matter which line he was on, the same statement held true, that uh, that line was better when he was on it. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a, there's a, it's a real tough one. There's this, what I call the Pulley-Yarvey paradox, kind of seemingly, some seemingly contradictory things. Like people will point out, you know, um, he, you know, the Oilers, when he was on the ice, they scored more goals for percentage than any other player on the team, a higher percentage at even strength, you know. Of course, other, then others people will say, well, he's on the ice with McDavid all the time. Um, mm-hmm. Do you actually put so much weight in that stat that you think, would you ever, would you argue? Because, yes, yes Pulley Arvey had a higher goal for percentage that he's a better player than Connor McDavid. I don't think it's... No, that's, I that's, wouldn't that's, argue that. I would argue yeah. that McDavid is better playing with Pulley Arvey than without. So, so that's, yeah. Uh, and then, then they say, well, they don't, you know, they don't score very much when, yes, he's on the ice, which is also true. But, of course, def- for sure there's the least amount of defensive responsibility for a winger. So, you know, it's it's much more important who the defenseman and the center were on the ice when he was on the ice in terms of goals against. Um, the wingers have a huge contribution to the goals for, but on the goals against, that's really more comes down to the defensive play of the whole unit with the biggest emphasis being on those defensemen, uh, the center, and, of course, the goalie. So, you know, I... But all of that said, if you actually track everything Pugliarvi does to help create uh, grade A shots, mm-hmm. he, he rated very well on the team this year. He was one of the top wingers in the regular season. His game, though, did collapse in the playoffs. He was about half the player he was um, that he had been in the regular season. And that's a conundrum. Um, you know, it might be related to, to illness and injury. It's a highly likely explanation. But it, it did happen. And I think there's a, a lot of recency bias in terms of rating Pugliarvi because of that. Maybe, <laughs> excuse me, even from Ken Holland and uh, Jay Woodcroft to some extent. You know, Holland's uh, call, comment at the end of the year that they've got to sort out Yessa yeah. uh, was a little bit alarming, frankly. It, it was. was not that positive. And I, so at this point, I'm kind of expecting the owners are going to trade Yessa Pugliarvi. Now, so in the keep, hold, or fold category, I, th- I think that my evaluation of him as a player, Bruce, is similar to yours. Uh, we may put different weight in different stats, but I think we come out in the same place where I see this as a very, very promising player who had a really good year, uh, who does make the players around him on the ice, who is a glue player, who is attacked for his hockey IQ consistently by uh, NHL observers, um, I guess scouts, some scouts and and, you know, seeing the playoffs, you could see why, because he lost his confidence and he just started throwing the puck around the boards instead of trying to make plays. There was a real problem there, um, his play in the playoffs. But, geez, overall, he goes to the net. Um, that's a smart player who, who goes to the net, you know, who's listening to the coach, go to the net, good, good things happen. He was doing that all year long. You know, we track something called hard plays uh, on grade A shots. So these are the, you know, the tips in front of the net, the jam plays in front of the net where you're jet, like the goalie's got it and you're jamming there and defenseman's cross-checking you. These are like, you charge hard at the net, opening up space for teammates to make passes or you win a battle on the forecheck. You know, you pop the puck or, or use your body to win the puck. So these are hard plays at at the net on grade A shots. Well, um, Pulley Arvey finished last year second only to um, Alex Chason on the team. Um, Pulley Arvey had last year, he had, uh, on grade A shots, 50, uh, he had 47 of those hard plays at the net on 50 in 55 games this mm-hmm. year, he had 81 of them in 65 games. 
So he he greatly increased his rate of hard plays on the net on grade A shots mm-hmm. this year. It's, it's not an easy thing to do to make those plays. You take a lot of beating, take a lot of pounding, and he was he was willing to take it. And so there might be like this, like this talk about his hockey IQ, I, but then I don't hear them say something. Well, but one thing we have to give him credit for that guy it, he goes for it. He's mm-hmm. he's he's spending himself physically. He's take he's a gritty hockey player who's um, I think a glue player. He does all these little things, these hard, dirty things in the game that make it easier for the players that he plays with. And in terms of defensive hockey IQ, um, I'm I'm not seeing a lack of defensive acumen. Was he perfect on defense? No. Is is any player? No, I mean, watch Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl for a season. You'll see them make dozens and dozens and dozens of mental mistakes on grade-A shots against. Sometimes to an infuriating level, with personally, with Leon Dreisaitl, although you and I disagree about this somewhat. But I just think, like, there's not always a commitment there to making the fundamental defensive play. In, and that goes with every single Oilers hockey player. Pulley-Arvey's rate of defensive mistakes is 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 average, I think, for a winger on the Oilers. You know, there's mm-hmm. some talk. Who's better on defense, Yamamoto or Pulley-Arvey? You know, the people who believe it's Pulley-Arvey will pull out the will pull out um, the on ice numbers for goals against, and he's got better numbers than Yamamoto. Well, I think they're both actually pretty good. They both take care of their defensive responsibilities, and they both also lose their check now and then. They make mistakes. Yamamoto, when he was with uh, Drysaddle and McDavid. Um, he would often cover in the defensive slot. He's when he's with Drysaddle, who likes to to cheat on defense, go for the steal and and read the play. Yamamoto's always covering for him. So I, I just think it's it's they're both kind of they're both okay at least defensive players. And I'm not seeing a lack of hockey IQ on either of them, either of those players. What I saw with Pugliarvi was a lack of confidence as the year went on, a lack of belief in himself that when he got the puck in the offensive end, he could make a play and he was going to try to make a play. Instead, he was being passive and giving up the puck. So Ken Holland did identify that. Now that could be an, an issue going forward. Like maybe he doesn't have high confidence or maybe that's something that's going to be difficult to fix. But I think we've seen in the past players like Ryan McLeod, for instance, <clears throat> have games where, where you're starting to, like, stretches of games where you're starting to wonder, why is he in the NHL anymore? Because he he's not making plays. And then I think these young players decide, I'm going to go for it no matter what and just see what I can do. And McLeod in the playoffs was sky high in terms of his confidence. Well, he could crash next regular season mm-hmm. for 20 or 30 games. Mm-hmm. And and that's what happened to Pugliarvi. It's yeah. not unusual for players' confidence and their willingness to try and to take chances for that to fade away, especially in a young player. But I think... Um, I, I think that the orders may move him, but so in terms of what category I'm in, I'm in the hold category, not the keep category. And, and there's only run one reason for that. And it's because of uh, information that I don't have. I don't know necessarily how keen Yessa Pugliarvi himself is to stay in Edmonton. And I don't know how keen, what, what the contract demands of his agent are. Like, what are they looking for in terms of a contract? What do they think they should get? So if Pugliarvi does want to stay in Edmonton, and if the contract demand is reasonable, I'm definitely in the keep camp. But this is kind of an unknown right now. And there's been difficult negotiations in the past. And there's been indications, yes, he didn't always want to stay here. 
Um, at one point, he went back to Finland and, and wanted a trade. So because of this, um, I, I really like the player. I hope he signs here. I think the orders would be wise to do what they can. And I wish Ken Holland had been more positive in terms of his verbal saying this is a, he should have said, this is a player we'd like to keep. No. He struggled in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it. Struggled there. This is a guy though we see potential in. And that's what the definite message from Jay Woodcroft was, you know, he, he, he said the players didn't ever lose confidence in Yessa and neither did he as a coach. That was, I, I, I think it was a mistake from Ken Holland, but it, Bruce, it could have also been like, if we're playing poker, it could have been a tell. And that's how I take that as a tell. That mm-hmm. yes, a play RV, and we don't know exactly why that is. Like whether the con- maybe Ken Holland's expecting a contract to demand that's way too out of too high, mm-hmm. and they just can't afford. That maybe that's why he's pessimistic. Maybe that's it. We don't know. That might become clear, or it may never become clear. But I, I do. I have the sense that he may be moved, and I that won't be a happy day for me as a as an Oilers fan. Yeah, on and again, I mean. When Holland went to uh, 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 Leto, his agent is, right? And he, yeah. uh, when he was in Finland and brought him back and got him to agree to a two-year contract, which I think was a clear win for Holland to get him at, you know, under 1.2 million for two years. I think he way outperformed that contract in both years. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> but who knows what kind of agreement was reached? I mean, we know from before that uh, Marcus Leto and, uh, negotiated in Pugliarvi's rookie year when he originally agreed to come over here that he would play at least 40 games and have his first season best because he played the 40th game and then got sent out right afterwards. It was a pretty obvious tell that uh, it was just uh, uh, Peter Shirelli living up to something he'd agreed to do. Well, who knows what Holland agreed to do? Maybe he said, sign for two years, and at the end of two years, you tell us if you want us to move you or keep you. I mean, you just don't know what kind of uh, of uh, behind-the-scenes stuff uh, might have gone on. Uh, that said, uh, as a, a long-suffering 21st century Oilers fan, uh, I am so sick and tired of seeing... Uh, 24-year-old guys getting moved out of Edmonton when there's, you know, they haven't blossomed into full-blown superstars. Well, there's something wrong with them. Let's get rid of that guy. <clears throat> Let's bring in, you know, some 30-year-old guy that's, uh, you know, been around the league 400 times or, or uh, you know, let's go for the next shiny young kid or something. I mean, he's close. To, to really emerging, and I think he has emerged to, uh, to a significant degree. And, and to me, the team will be worse uh, the day that they trade him. And maybe they trade him for some guy that hasn't quite got it done on some other team. Like I see names like Casey Middlestat or maybe Martin Neckash coming, you know, as a guy. Like if you trade him for a draft pick, well, you're waiting for that guy for five years. Uh, you got to get something back that's a little more current than that. But I think Yesipoliarvi is helping the Oilers right now, and he will continue to do so if they can uh, come to agreement. Maybe they'll trade him for Andreas Athanasiu. Oh, there's, there's my. I don't usually don't go for the cheap shot, but I couldn't resist that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we we have seen Bruce. You know, Jarrett Stoll, Matt Green, Kyle Brodziak, Andrew Cogliano, Jeff Petrie, um, Justin Schultz. There has been a sorry number 
of trades of players who who went on to other cities and became Taylor very Hall. very 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 good hockey players. <laughs> yeah, Taylor Hall. It's a kind of a different mm-hmm. category, and I like Adam Larson a lot. But, so. Yeah, but I'm talking about just guys mm-hmm. that you know they they start here, they play here for a few years, and then they get to their mid twenties, and all of a sudden they're they're uh, uh, ready to be moved on out of here. Jordan Everly, Ryan Strom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guys that they didn't get full value for uh, on their way out, or they didn't get any value for in some cases. I mean, I've written more than a couple pieces on this over the past of, you know, building your team from within. And, you know, you, you need not just your star players, but some of your role and support players uh, that are coming up and through the organization. And, He's still in the value contract stage of his career. So he's got uh, two more RFA years, and he's uh, up for UFA in 2024, uh, not 2025, as reported in some places because of that thing I mentioned earlier with the 40 games in 2016-17. Uh, 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 but uh, uh, in uh, two more years, he's up for unrestricted. But they have, you know, two RFA years. And, you know, in the perfect world to me, they'd sign him while his boxcars are down and get him under lock and key for three or four years. But uh, I don't see that at this point. I think it's one year, two years tops. Yeah, I'm hoping they move out uh, Zach Cassian, Warren Fogel and Tyson Berry. Pay those contracts to him and Yamamoto and and it's all good. Yeah, and with Berry (laughs) using that money to get a goalie. So, um, yeah. I'd I'd like to see that that happen. This happen with the Edmonton Oilers. I mean, or you could you could, I guess, blow all the money on Evander Kane if if um, that you know that's that's one of the decisions that could be made. But uh, the Oilers have enough young wingers that I think um, if they can move Fogel's contract and if they can move, if especially if they can move Cassian's contract, that'd be fantastic. But we'll see what happens there. It's not. I don't think it's necessarily impossible. It's probably unlikely you could move Cassian's contract without a sweetener but there might be some team you know desperate for a bigger tough player that that would go for him you know with the orders retaining some of the salary right um that's a possibility i mean we've heard that in the past that some team might be interested in him so even if they retain some there at least they only would have to retain for two years or if they go for the buyout route they, that is a four-year commitment that they keep paying you know after oh. their contracts expired and i mean we know looking at the oil's payroll year after year they have you know like five million dollars in dead cap space because of mistakes they've made in the past on some of these long-term contracts and uh, cassian i think was a little bit unforced error but indeed Alrighty, any other news i think that's about it for now we're going to keep doing our keep, hold, and fold series, right? Um, yeah. Do you know who you're writing about next? Have you thought, figured it out? Or? Uh, well, if you're writing about JP, I might follow right up with uh, KY, Kyler Kyle Yamamoto, because they're kind of almost peas in a pod, both first-round draft choices, both 98 birthdays, uh, both with the identical cap hit uh, on expired RFA contracts and uh, they play the same position even so there's you know lots of compare and contrast and uh, uh, some are saying well which one would you keep and my answer is well both all things being equal I'd rather 
keep those young guys and keep building with them. We saw Yamamoto take a big step this year, and I don't think he's done growing, and I, you know, I don't think either one of them is. So, but. Here's one for you, Bruce. Uh, mm-hmm. Ethan Bear is apparently on the trading block, can mm-hmm. talk to other teams. Would you be interested, uh, under what circumstances would you be interested in bringing him back to Edmonton, if any? Uh, that's a difficult question. Uh, I mean, I like the player, and I, you know, I've I've liked him since uh, the Oilers drafted him, and uh, you know, I had the chance to interview him as an 18-year-old uh, with Seattle. And actually, that may be the magic word. I think there may be a best fit for him in Seattle. Yeah, as a place for a landing spot for him, where he has a personal history, where the, you know, he's got a team with lots of room to grow and so on. Uh, in Edmonton, would you know? depend on the status of their other right, specifically right defenseman. And uh, CC is locked down. Bouchard, I think, is basically locked down long-term. Barry's got two more. Like, right now, there's no room for a right defenseman. And if they move yeah. Barry and brought in Bear, I mean, uh, maybe you're saving some money by doing that. But uh, I don't think that's probably the mix that they're looking for. So I think it's highly doubtful. And also, yeah. He, yeah. he went through some crap. Uh, during his time here, which may might make him reluctant to return. So more is a pity, even though I will say that a huge majority of the fan base went to bat for the guy. But oh, yeah, was, he was a real you know, fan favorite. Yeah, mm-hmm. he was a huge fan so, favorite. So, <clears throat> yeah, I, he, I don't know. Here's my thing about Ethan Barrett. He is a good player. He's not as good as Cody Cece or Evan Bouchard, and I don't think he's actually that close. Right. And um, especially against tough competition, he, he as a third pairing demon at the right price, you know, yeah. that I could, you know, that's, that's something to think about. That said, you have Philip Broberry and I would rather Philip Broberry play the right side. He's, he's bigger, he's faster. And I think to beat the abs, you know, the orders are building a team to beat the abs that has, to, and I think that down the road, you're much more likely to beat the avalanche by developing Philip Broberry as, as opposed to Ethan Barron, using that ice time in that way. So that would be my my strong preference, even though I think Ethan Barron is a, a, a good third-pairing NHL D-man um, and can play in the top four on some teams. Um, he uh, yeah. He's not the right fit in Edmonton. And then there's just all of the pressure about him mm-hmm. being First Nations yeah. Indigenous player which is so greatly magnified in Edmonton, both in a positive way and a negative way, but in a way that kind of, I think, becomes too much for the human being, for the individual himself to deal with. Just the constant discussion about it, the constant focus on it. It's, it's got to be a distraction, and I think it was for Ethan Bear, on a number of different levels. You know, the negativity, but just the scrutiny as well that comes out of that. So I think... It sounded to me like he was really relieved to be in Carolina, and um, that I suspect that he he wouldn't want to come back to Edmonton, and would would prefer to play in somewhere where they just the spotlight on him isn't so great. And I think that probably makes a lot of sense. They're different. Like I say, Seattle. I think that's a nice fit because he's got Agreed. a history playing hockey in right in that city, and so to to you know, and playing it well, his team went to the Memorial Cup and he won the WHL's Best Defenseman Award. You know, like he's got a, a good <clears throat> positive history there and now, you know, an NHL history and uh, coming back to a team that's trying to establish himself, I could see them really wanting to go for that player and, and being a good fit for 
both player and team. So that's just an educated guess on my part, but something to watch for. Yeah, good guess. All right, Bruce, let's leave it there. Thanks for talking today. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast.